podcast is a recording of Searching the Depths of the Unconscious, the Desert Fathers, and Psychoanalysis, a lecture held at Duquesne University in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania on Tuesday, October 24th, 2023, and presented by Father David Abernethy, a priest of the Byzantine Catholic Archeparchy of Pittsburgh and the founder of Philoclea Ministries. If you would like to learn more about Philoclea Ministries or listen to one of our 600 podcasts, please visit us at www.philokaliaministries.org. Thank you for listening and enjoy the podcast. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Okay, welcome uh, to our lecture on the uh, search, uh, what are we called again? Searching the depths of the unconscious. I'm sorry, I've been traveling for a couple of weeks myself and uh, still getting my feet underneath me. But in um, this study of the Desert Fathers and psychoanalysis, um, one of the, when I thought about, as we got closer to the time for the lecture, I thought, oh my goodness, what did I do? Because this would really be a full semester or a dissertation rather than a 45 minute talk or an hour talk. And so I decided to simply share with you how I entered into the study of both disciplines and why that was important and some of the things I saw in this journey over the past 30 years. And uh, it began when I entered into a religious community called the Congregation of the Oratory of St. Philip Neri. And many of you might know Father Drew Morgan here who teaches in the department. And uh, he was very instrumental, I think, in my, my formation and uh, I was a typical college undergraduate when I moved into the oratory and had no real spiritual formation at all. And uh, one Christmas, he got me a gift of the first three volumes of the Philokalia, which uh, were the first three published in English. And the Philokalia is simply a collection of the writings of the Desert Fathers from the 14th century and all those who follow them to the 15th century. So it's a, a beautiful resource. It was compiled on Mount Athos right when they were undergoing something very much like uh, Vatican II, uh, which led them to this kind of resourcement, both in regards to liturgy, but the spiritual tradition. And this led uh, St. Nicodemus and St. Marcarius to gather all of these writings together which uh, uh, now all in English is five full volumes. Uh, just an extraordinary resource. And there's something that was produced almost 800 years earlier that was also published uh, by them that in fact they had to bring to the West to get a publisher to put it together called the Evergatinos. And I don't know if anybody's heard of that before. It's a four volume set that has only been published in English maybe for the last 10 years. So we live in a wonderful time in that regard. We have access to so many materials that we wouldn't have had 20 years ago and that I certainly didn't have 30 years ago. And the Evergatinos is four volumes and each volume is made up of 50 hypotheses having to deal with uh, various aspects of the spiritual life from repentance to prayer, uh, the vices, the virtues. And a beautiful text and each volume is 400 pages and we're using it for one of our groups online and taking our time. Sometimes we only get through a paragraph or two a night and so it's taken us two and a half years to almost get through the first volume. So we're in no hurry and I find in general uh, not to rip on college education <laughs> but uh, it teaches us to read I think in the wrong way which is for information and to read very quickly and to scan. And, uh, you know, I went back purposely, I think, to how the monks of old would read. <coughs> Books were precious, and if you got a hold of a book, you would hold on to it for a long time, and you would memorize long portions of it. You wouldn't read it quickly to get through it. You would read it in order that it would become deeply ingrained. And uh, I used to work with undergraduate students uh, and I would have to follow the academic year. And so I would find myself editing huge portions of these texts in order to be able to present them 
to the group. And it was frustrating to no end because even then we would never get through the entire corpus of a great spiritual writer. And eventually I started working with the adult population that came to the oratory and then I was free. I could say we are going to pick up this text and we are going to read it verbatim and until we finish. And it's been a magnificent experience. And about in 2000, 2013, I started podcasting, uh, which was fine. I didn't really want to do that. Um, a little bit of a Luddite in that regard. But uh, when COVID hit, uh, we decided to go to Zoom. And then all of a sudden it blossomed. It opened up to people all across the world. We have somebody from every continent now that participates in it. And we went from like 50,000 downloads to 500,000 uh, downloads in a few years. And it enriched the, the conversation uh, in an extraordinary way. When you're reading with people who have a great love of what you have an interest in, it brings out things in the text that you've never thought on your own. And so even though I've read these texts over and over again dozens of times, it's made it uh, a beautiful experience. But in the beginning, uh, I, as I mentioned, I came in as an undergrad to the oratory and had no particular formation in Catholicism. I was convert to the faith. And uh, I was presented with this gift from Father Drew, these first three volumes. And immediately I was captivated by the Father's writings. And part of it was uh, the practicality of it, the focus not so much on the theoretical but praxis. How is it that we understand virtue and cultivate it? What do we do about vices that we struggle with or that have become habitual, have become passions, and that we've struggled with perhaps for decades of our life? How is it that we pray in such a way that we could embrace Paul's exhortation to pray without ceasing? And there amongst the fathers, I found this incredible richness, but also this deep understanding of the interior life. So subtle, so shrewd in seeing the movements of the mind and the heart that it rivals anything that I've encountered in modern day psychotherapy, uh, including psychoanalysis. And not to diminish uh, these disciplines, but uh, there was something about the movement to the desert that allowed that to become a kind of laboratory for the interior life. Uh, when Christianity was embraced by the culture, uh, there was already very quickly a, a movement that people began to see within the life of the church towards kind of lukewarmness, mediocrity, not taking the life uh, seriously. It became a cultural phenomenon. And so there was a movement out in the desert, not to escape or to flee the culture or to flee reality, but to enter into it more deeply. These men were, were driven by desire and desire for God. And if the kingdom of God lies within, it's in the desert and in the silence of the desert, they, they would seek that fully. And as I, I read the fathers over the course of the years, I, I was struck by the, the similarity between this experience, going into the desert on your own, having no one to talk to. It's just yourself and God and your surroundings. And that creates a blank screen for the individual. Every thought that comes to mind, everything that emerges from the unconscious, which they were very much aware of, you cannot project onto another individual or onto a set of circumstances. It all comes from within and compels you, in a sense forces you to examine it and its qualities. And, uh, and so, for example, anger is an emotion and certainly in and of itself, it's not sinful. But the monks found out very quickly that they could be in the heart of the desert, not see anyone for weeks on end, and find themselves getting not only angry, but enraged at inanimate objects. If they would trip over a stone or a piece of wood, they would find themselves cursing it. And so this process of entering into the desert and seeing the, the movements of the heart, uh, but also dealing with the, the physical aspects of being a human being, 
dealing with their appetites, having really to restrain or being restrained simply by living in the desert in terms of what they would eat, what they would drink, not having communication with others. And so being immersed in this deep and profound solitude, uh, certainly for many, I'm sure it drove them near to madness, uh, but for others it brought them to a deep insight into the human condition and the workings of the mind and the heart. And for a young man who had never experienced this before, it was, again, something quite beautiful. It began to reveal something to me about the internal life. Uh, what is it to be a human being? What does it mean that I have these various appetites and desires, which I know drive me and determine the decisions that I make? and uh, in trying to fulfill them or satisfy them. What do I do with the thoughts that constantly sweep upon me throughout the, the course of the day? Some of the more recent studies uh, about the number of thoughts that we have go, uh, uh, given a, a particular day is 40,000 thoughts. And so you begin to think about that a little bit. What do I do with the 40,000 thoughts that come to me if I am trying to be more attentive to the interior life, and especially attentive to something like uh, that St. Paul writes, we take every thought captive and we make it obedient to Christ. And so knowing that you have 40,000 thoughts uh, sort of uh, gives that a kind of magnitude when you, you think about it. How do I do something such as this, take every thought captive? And uh, so when I began to, to read the, the Fathers, uh, I began to see that they were ever so cognizant of uh, the appetites, the desires that we have, that they did not have the negative anthropology that I think they often were presented as having. That somehow theirs was an expression of an archaic spirituality, that they hated the human body and that they sought to punish it uh, through this rigorous asceticism. But as I immersed myself in the text over the course of the years, reading the entire corpus, certainly of the Philoclea and then others, you begin to see that this is not true. That uh, interspersed throughout the writing was the language of desire and wonder about the human person. So far from a negative anthropology, thank you, it was just the opposite. They could see the beauty with which we had been created uh, the wonder of, of the human person, and uh, especially seeing ourselves made in the image and likeness of God, as well as seeing the struggle that is ours. And, uh, and so you have them using words like desire over and over again. And the root uh, of the word desire is sense of lack or sense of incompleteness. So they're driven into the desert with this conscious feeling, thought, experience of lacking something that is essential to their identity as human beings, that nothing in the world could fulfill or satisfy. And so they enter into the desert, uh, not simply to engage in this kind of raw endurance or to punish the body, but seeking something to fill a void within themselves that they came to see that only could be filled by God. And all of their asceticism meant to allow them to see within the bodily desires and hungers, the fundamental desire and hunger for God. If you remember the, the scripture passage from the gospel in particular where Jesus speaks about fasting, he's questioned, why do your disciples not fast when the scribes, Pharisees do, and when John the Baptist's disciples do? And he tells the crowds, they have the bridegroom with them. Uh, but there will come a time when the bridegroom is taken away, and then they will fast. And from that period on, the meaning of fasting changes radically. In the Old Testament, if you go back and look at it, there are a multitude of reasons why people would fast. In order to prepare for reading scripture, to prepare to go into battle as a form of penance, multiple reasons. But in this one story, Jesus recast it all. Now he, as the bread of life, becomes the focal point 
of men and women's fasting, but also uh, the lens through which they would see their own desires as human beings, whether it's their desire for food or any of their bodily appetites, sexual or otherwise, that they would see within that the greater desire that is only satisfied in their creator. And so fasting takes on this new meaning. I will fast because in this hunger, I experience a greater desire for he who is the bread of life. And they would fast on a daily basis and came to love those disciplines that then led them into this experience of greater intimacy with God. So far from being an escape from the world, it was this movement, this striving to come to know God with a greater clarity internally. If the kingdom of God lies within, that's where they would look. That's where they would do battle. And part of entering into the laboratory of the, of the desert to engage in this experience, they had no monks to follow. There was no role. There were no religious communities. They were driven purely by this desire for the Lord. And so they had to discover this path for themselves and learn what their bodies, what their minds, what their thoughts were, were telling them. And uh, what was challenging for me in taking up the, the study of the Desert Fathers was the lack of supplementary reading. So I had the first three volumes of the Philokalia, but everything else was in either in a library at Mount Athos or in a different language, nothing to explain their anthropology, their psychology, how they understood the human person. There were things that were so foreign that it was very difficult for me to enter into. The English translators of the Philokalia would often translate a particular word as intellect. And what comes to our mind typically is reason, our capacity to intellectually pull things apart. Whereas in the Greek word, it's nous. It's eye of the heart, eye of the soul. And for them, the, the soul and the heart is really the unconscious, the fullness of the person. And so not just our capacity for reason, but everything that makes up life for us as, as human beings. And so it became clear to them, if they were going to perceive God, if they were going to overcome the impe uh, impediments that were often caused by disordered desire or self-focus or egotism, that they would have to discipline themselves in mind and body. And so this is exactly what they do in the desert. They begin to pray in this kind of non-discursive fashion. Has anybody here heard of the Jesus prayer before? Uh, and so they, they saw that they, there was a need to move from that multiplicity of thought to simplicity. There's no way that we are going to take captive 40,000 thoughts. But what we can do is move the heart to a stillness. And so they would begin to pray without ceasing, almost with their breath, this very short prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. While they were working, and they would engage in a work that was typically a manual labor, making mats and such that they could sell in the market, but while that would allow them to pray and move from that multiplicity to simplicity, that they could become more aware of what was going on internally. Uh, what thoughts would suddenly come to mind? Where those thoughts might be coming from? Is this a thought that's arising out of the unconscious? Is this a thought that's coming from God? Uh, is this a thought that's coming from memory? Or for them, if, what, is it a thought that was put before them as a temptation? And so it was their way of being very attentive, but in this gentle fashion to what was going on interiorly. And so even though they are often, again, presented as being these individuals who engage in this kind of raw endurance, they actually had uh, a, a very clear balance of avoiding the extremes in one direction or another. And I'll just use one example, fasting again, that they would fast every single day. 
because they realize that the ordering of this appetite, bodily appetite for food, uh, slowed down things interiorly. It altered one's mental state as well as spiritual state. And one's prayer would deepen as the interior state began to slow down. The thoughts would begin to slow down throughout the course of the day. So it was before the breaking of the fast that often the prayer became the deepest. It was the humbling, if you will, of the mind and the body at the same time. And this opened up this experience, again, of intimacy with God and depth of prayer. Now, most of us can't get through day without eating three meals and uh, grazing in between. And our uh, spiritual practice, especially in the West, has lost sight of fasting in this sense. And uh, I think one of the first things I, I want to, to focus upon is that psycho, just as psychoanalysis has sort of fallen out of favor, and there's been this movement to shorter term therapies, often driven by insurance companies, and, uh, but some of them are very good and bear great fruit for individuals. But psychoanalysis is something that goes on for years. And, uh, but also with this spiritual tradition, there's been a, a movement away from this, where there was supposed to be this resource mont, uh, especially from Vatican II on, that we go back to these spiritual resources that re reveal so much to us about the interior life and the struggle that we have. Come on in, Nate. There's your hubby. <laughs> <laughs> so where was I? Uh, that we, we have not gone back to the earliest and the deepest and the richest resources of our spiritual tradition that revealed to us the, the deepest aspects of who we are as human beings and what goes on interiorly. That I've come to see over the course of time that mirrors what we see develop within psychoanalysis. And one, one aspect of it would be uh, free association that part of being able to look at one's thoughts and to gain a greater awareness of where one's mind is and where one's particular struggle might lie, the uh, younger disciples would often live with an elder in a group of three or four, a skeet it would be called, and every day they would reveal every thought that they had to their elder. And in this way, the elder would be able to get a sense of what it is that they would be struggling with on a day-to-day -day basis. Where, what was the movement of the mind, the habit of mind, even if it wasn't sinful, that uh, he would be able just to get a sense of the person and how their mind worked and what might help solidify things for them in this ascetical struggle. And we see in psychoanalysis the embrace of the same practice. Freud had individuals lie on a couch and he and other analysts would sit behind the analysan. And so nothing would be revealed about the analyst to the person on the couch in order that whatever's going through the mind and the heart of the person undergoing analysis could not be projected, although it would be, onto the analyst but you couldn't blame the analyst for the thoughts that you're having because you know nothing about them and you don't even see them. You're laying on the couch looking at the ceiling. And so the ceiling becomes your blank screen. And so Freud had individuals engage in this free association, not screening anything that comes to mind, any thought that comes to mind, daydreams, uh, dreams at night, thoughts about the analyst, the, even the most embarrassing things, or things that seemed not connected to what you were talking about three minutes before this thought comes to mind. You would bring forward in order to be able to see and begin to see the internal narrative that is taking place from moment to moment in one's life. So it's almost like s circling around a gem and seeing every facet of it. It's painfully slow, but as you do so, you're picking up one element after another that reveals something about 
your internal emotional state. How it is that you view the world, reality, others, and, in, and even also your relationship with God. And so it's a beautiful art, I would say almost, uh, to it, uh, but very challenging. And very much like the desert monks, the analysis end would meet with the analyst every day of the week, or at least four or five days of the week on the couch, and, and go through this process of revealing every, every thought. And the analysts would typically be very silent, noting down things that were said, dreams that emerged, things that uh, people uh, sort of projected out onto the analyst, or if they be, would become angry at the analyst, uh, or have an angry thought that they would have to say that. And I have sort of a funny experience, but uh, my analyst was a, a woman. And uh, as I was on the couch, I had this thought about her and I had to tell her about it. And uh, do you know the Reese's Monkeys trial? It was like uh, a metal monkey is in a, put in a cage and they wrap it with like a cloth and there's a bottle that feeds these baby monkeys. And these baby monkeys, because they're being fed, go in and they cling to this metal monkey, even though it offers no comfort and no warmth. And so I had to tell my analyst, this is sort of how I experience you as this, <laughs> as this metal uh, mother monkey that you offer no warmth to me or no comfort. And uh, it was an embarrassing moment, but it was illuminating. And it was truthful that what was being given there is not what my heart yearned for the most in some of those moments. When you're talking about experiences that you had from your youth, or something that comes to mind that is very difficult or painful in the present. And they sit there and every once in a while you hear them drop their pen on the floor <laughs> and pick it up and that's it. And every once in a while they would comment to help refocus you or to help you focus on that thought or not move away from it. But the same process that I saw within the Desert Fathers uh, uh, existed with, within analysis this attentiveness to the thoughts and this very focused way that was very much uh, attentive to the internal life and a willingness to circle around it from multiple perspectives in order to see what that internal narrative was. And that's part of the healing process that takes place, that you become more and more of that aware of that internal narrative that is for most of us unconscious, or at least for most of the time. You begin to see the subtleties of your thoughts and the things that affect you, and even the things that affected you pre-verbal before you have even any memory of the experience. When I was two years old, I had a bad accident, and uh, uh, I was out on a porch, and my mom was cooking lunch for my dad who was coming home, and the phone rang, and it was, 15 seconds, and in that 15 seconds, I pulled myself up over a railing, down onto a concrete driveway, 12 feet down, and fractured my skull. And uh, was comatose and was in the hospital for a period of, of time. And uh, I've only heard stories. There's no pictures from this period of time, and nobody talked about it, other than the fact that when I came home, I, my, fate, my head was green, you know, from the bruising. Uh, but we weren't allowed to talk about it, or we just didn't, because it was too devastating. And I had an interesting experience. It was when I was in analysis. I asked my mom, I said, how long was I in the hospital? How long was I comatose? Because my sister had told me, it's quite a while, you know, a month or so. And my mom said, oh no, it was a few days. And then she paused for a long time, and then she said, you know what, I can't remember. And this was, 45 years later when I asked her this question. And uh, so I know that that reality changed the family dynamic radically and it changed my way of relating to my mom. I know that she underwent a pretty severe depression after that and, and because of the guilt experiences that she, she had. And so even though I have no distinct memory of it, I do have the experience on this very basic and fundamental level of how it changed all those realities 
for me that followed me into adulthood. There's interesting little fact that that many who go into the field of psychology had depressed mothers. And so they go into this field often driven by the desire to do f for others what they could not do for their mother mm -hmm. as a child, to draw them out of their depression. And it doesn't mean that that invalidates their choice. It make, it's, makes it very understandable that they would have this sensitivity to the needs uh, of others and this desire to draw them, draw them out of it. So, I digress. Back to the study of the fathers. So, I, this book by Herothios Vlachos comes out. He's an Orthodox bishop. Uh, the year I was ordained to the priesthood, 1994, and it's called Orthodox Psychotherapy. And I grabbed hold of it because it was the first resource that began to unpack for me the language of the fathers, how they were using these words, uh, like the noose that we had talked about, how, how they understood the interior life, the faculties uh, of, of the soul, the appetitive faculty, the, the insensitive faculty, the intellective faculty. So, you know, these, uh, these faculties that we have to reason through things, the, our desiring faculty, and the insensitive faculty is what it sort of sounds like. It's whenever we experience injustice in, in the world or when we is experience the approach of a temptation, anything that would draw us away from the path of the truth, this faculty activates and we respond to it and in this aggressive way, we become incensed by it in order to, to uproot it as quickly as possible. Part of our problem is in our fallen state, we often direct that incensive faculty towards each other. And we know each other's, uh, the chinks in the armor and the weaknesses and the natural defects that each of us have. And we often direct that uh, sadly towards each other. But it was Vlachos that not only altered my reading and deepened my reading of, of the fathers, but also uh, reshaped how I looked at the spiritual life as a whole. He saw uh, the, the asceticism of the Desert Fathers as being the science of sciences. And that uh, Christianity and spirituality is therapy. It's the healing of the soul. And that psychotherapy uh, is healing of the soul. His psyche does not mean what we typically think it means, which is uh, emotion or our thoughts, our intellect. It means soul. And so it's the healing of the soul, of the whole self, that we are uh, to consider in the course of our life. And this is what we gain from the fathers. In an unparalleled way, there, a Jesuit, Irenae Hashir, says, wherever you find renewal within the life of the church, there you will find the Desert Fathers. And for this particular reason, because of the depth of their understanding of the human person that emerges and flowers out of this experience and this experiment of entering into the desert that illuminated so much of our struggle as human beings, both in terms of our emotional maturity, but spiritual maturity, how we understand what is going on within. And it's interesting, in the Eastern Church, you find a kind of homogeneity uh, in this development. So in all these writers in the Philoclea, for example, from the fourth to the 15th century, you see the same anthropology, the same psychology, the very same language that is used by all of them, whereas in the West, you find various schools of spirituality develop, and often for external reasons. And one good example would be the, uh, the Protestant Reformation. And so the Counter-Reformation emerges, you find the emergence of all these incredible saints within the life of the church, Ignatius of Lo Loyola, Philip Neri, Camillus de Lellis, Teresa of Avila, all that have this particular vision of responding to the gospel, but also to meet the needs of the day. And all of them were immersed in this tradition and this understanding of the human person and the ascetic life. But what happens over the course of time when you move out of that moment of crisis in history 
and uh, these, these new s schools of spirituality begin to emerge based upon the charism of a founder. As time passes and there's a distance from the founder, sometimes there's also a watering down or an altering of the articulation of that spiritual path. And uh, it's understandable and sort of a natural thing that happens, but uh, what, what happens across the board with, with this is an un we become unmoored from this earliest part of the spiritual tradition that has shaped it all. And so uh, we, you can begin to have all these different spiritualities that emerge that where people pick and choose the things that speak to them directly, but not necessar necessarily present them with a fuller anthropology or psychology that is rooted in this long experience uh, of tradition. And, uh, and with that, you also get some, at times, pretty radical distortions. So Vlachos alters things for me at this point. And I carry on as a priest uh, for my first years uh, as priesthood and people in my priesthood and people start asking for spiritual direction, pastoral counsel. And often people will approach a priest not only when they're seeking spiritual counsel, but when they're going through crisis in their life. Sometimes they don't feel comfortable going to a psychotherapist or there's some stigma in their mind about it, uh, yet they will feel comfortable going to a priest and maybe not even conscious of the fact that they are doing it for that reason. They feel more comfortable approaching somebody that's speaking to the spiritual tradition, someone who might be able to help them through this without having to look at specifically the, the trauma that they might be experiencing or the depression or the anxiety that they might be experiencing. And so you learn very quickly as a priest. People come in and say, Father, help me. My life is a mess. Fix me. And as young priests, you, you step into that over and over again like a fool until you realize, oh my goodness, there's much more going on here than simply questions about the spiritual life or having a kind of regularity or constancy about their spiritual life. That there often is trauma that goes back the times to pre-verbal times where there was neglect, where there was physical, emotional, sexual abuse. And, uh, and so often that is brought into the context of spiritual direction. And so as a young priest, I would be working with people for a period of time until these things began to emerge. And then I was walking in the dark. And uh, it was a sad thing because you know the need to refer them to someone that could help them. But often that would also be the end of that relationship on a spiritual level in terms of talking about their spiritual life uh, as well as one of the great resources for them as individuals because the focus become, is now on the trauma that often begins to manifest itself full bore within the context of spiritual direction. And I never felt comfortable about that. I felt like I was abandoning my responsibility to others, at least to enter into the struggle that they were enduring and perhaps have endured throughout the course of their life. Uh, to be a, a presence, even if I could not offer uh, psychological counsel or insight, that I would be aware of what spiritual counsel I would give that would not worsen what they were experiencing. Uh, somebody who's struggling with anorexia, you're not going to counsel to take up fasting and, and fasting in intensely. Uh, you have to be aware of the dynamics that are behind that. And so this is where a shift takes place in my life towards uh, psychology. And before I make this move, I want to say the same thing that I see in the spiritual life, the neglect of the tradition. I see uh, uh, a struggle in the Catholic Church to engage in a dialogue with a different discipline and a very important and powerful discipline. Freud was an atheist 
and that uh, caused a lot of consternation, certainly among Catholics. In fact, it was in canon law that priests were not allowed, this is one of the jobs that they were not allowed to have. You were not allowed under canon law to be a psychoanalyst or even to study it uh, for years. And so there was no dialogue that was taking place between modern psychology in the uh, 19th and 20th century, uh, especially not with psychoanalysis. And there was equal contempt, I think, directed towards religiosity. Freud saw uh, religion, faith, as a psychological construct, that it is something that comes into existence to offer us a sense of security, safety in an otherwise threatening, dark, and hostile world. And, uh, and so there was this movement back in a defensive position from engaging this discipline. Uh, and, uh, and there were, were walls put up on the other side too that didn't make it very easy, certainly for Catholics, let alone priests, to engage in this study. It's interesting, Freud went through uh, friends like we go through t-shirts, you know, changing them, that, that there was always this struggle with him as being the father figure, the founder of this movement of depth psychology. And so Jung and all of those that were part of that first group eventually want to individualize. They want to uh, follow their own insights and, uh, and develop their, their theory as well as clinical practice. And Freud, you know, hung on to his insights with a death grip and it destroyed relationship after relationship except one. He had a long-term friendship with Oscar Pfister, who was a Lutheran uh, pastor but also a trained analyst. And they remained friends for over the course of 25 years. Pfister was able to enter into that without experiencing any threat. There was this desire that he had to, to bring it uh, into his church in terms of education in the faith, but also formation. And uh, when Freud wrote his work, The Future of an Illusion, speaking about religion, Pfister wrote a book, The Illusion of a Future, in response to it. Uh, but yet they were able to maintain this civil relationship throughout the course of the years. Uh, so this is where I, I met my challenge uh, because of this lack of engagement over the course of 100 years, is that all of a sudden there is this interest that develops within uh, the church in regards to therapy, a realization that people do struggle with trauma and that this can't be neglected uh, within the life of the church. If we are to offer healing, comfort, support, if we are to bring faith to bear on these realities, we have to enter into that, that dialogue. Uh, and so I set myself out to do exactly that. But what I found was, uh, and I don't want to be overly critical here, but this attempt, as we often will see, of like melding two different disciplines that are very different in the way that they approach things and the language that they use. And what emerges from that often can be uh, superficial. That probably did sound very, really harsh, but that was the experience that what I, I entered into a counseling program and what I found was a kind of eclectic approach to modern psychotherapies. So a smattering of, of information is gi given to prepare a person to work with others and when they try to do this in a Christian se uh, setting to do Christian counseling, what you find is a thin veneer of spirituality thrown over top of that and not necessarily, not certainly this, uh, or Catholic spirituality or the Desert Fathers, but more of a thin veneer of an evangelical kind of spirit spirituality. And uh, so entering into it intellectually and spiritually, I tried to, but I couldn't endure it. And, uh, and so I withdrew. But uh, providentially, my spiritual director for 20 years uh, was a Benedictine priest and a trained analyst. And uh, so for 20 years, I knew the fruit of having someone who could listen like an analyst and was attentive to all the things that I was saying and not saying. 
and was not in a hurry to fix me or to tell me what to do. And when I found myself struggling, had enough trust that I would be able to work my way th through that by talking about what my experience was. And not by him simply from the outside telling me what to do, but allowing uh, insight to emerge from within and through the very struggle itself. So 20 th for 20 years, I experienced the fruit of one who was trained in both areas and who did the work. And uh, uh, this is where I discovered that this is what one must do, that we can't be lazy about our in engagement uh, in understanding the interior life. You have to be willing to study in both fields. And I knew that, you know, I had done multiple degrees in theology and understood the spiritual life very well. I wasn't afraid of engaging those who had no faith or were atheistic or were antagonistic to the faith. What I wanted to learn, what I wanted to understand was this depth psychology. And even though Freud was an atheist, what I found is that there was this respect and understanding of the mystery of the human person. So despite his lack of faith, he could see that the human person was complex, that the decisions that we make, the choices that we make, the things that we do in this life are multi-determined, that the unconscious for Freud was like an iceberg so the tip of the iceberg is like the conscious life and the vast structure beneath it is the unconscious. And not only that, but things were multi-determined. So it's not just one thing that influences us in the way that we see the world, the way we see ourselves, and again, the choices that we make, but multiple things that are tied together. It can be things from our childhood, present experiences, present relationships, all these things tie together to form and shape our perception of reality. And so one has to enter into that work. And one of the things I respected uh, about psychoanalysis, uh, I first did a one-year psychoda uh, psychodynamic psychotherapy training. And so I was in a group of those who were psychotherapists or psychiatrists who were deepening their understanding of the field and had an interest. And so one year, and I was, again, hooked in the same way I was with the Desert Fathers because I found them doing something very similar and not in a superficial, superficial fashion. And uh, I thought to myself, well, I, I, I am a priest. My identity is pretty clear to everybody who I work with. And so I'm not going to seek licensure and I'm not going to study, I'm not going to practice as an analyst, but I want to study more. So the thought was to go and get a degree in psychoanalytic studies in London. And something upended that in my, my life in terms of uh, common life. I was elected provost and that put the next uh, on that. And, uh, but it opened up a door for me. The, Pittsburgh has its own psychoanalytic center, training center. And so I went from being able to study and get an MA in psychoanalytic studies to being able to undergo the full psychoanalytic training as an academic candidate. But basically you take all the same courses, you undergo your own analysis, and you present case studies as part of it. And it's a very long process, six or seven years of coursework, and then you uh, undergo your own analysis. So four or five days a week, I was on the couch for seven and a half years. And this is one of the things that, I, again, I saw this parallel with the Desert Fathers, that one engages in the spiritual life for the whole of one's life. And one does not seek to understand the mystery of the human person in 10 weeks of once a week meeting with a psychotherapist or once a week meeting with your spiritual director. Uh, and uh, so the, the length of it showed me that they, they understood that there was a complexity about the human person that needed to unfold over the course of time and that defenses emerge in a person's life in order to help us cope with reality. And the analyst's responsibility is to listen to that internal narrative as it unfolds 
in order to understand something of that person's experiences and why they have the defenses that they, they do, that you don't take a sledgehammer to those defense mechanisms. They're in place for a reason. They hold a person together, help them function in, in, in day-to-day life, to work, to love, and to enter into relationships. And so if you go in and do this kind of wild analysis and say, obviously, you're repressed here, you've repressed this, this trauma that you've experienced, you're going to throw a person into a psychotic episode. And, uh, and so ever so slow until the person sees that truth themselves before any interpretation is given, that they've already come to the threshold of seeing it and seeing it with a kind of clarity because again, they've circled around that internal narrative and the things in their life over and over again so that they see every facet of it and what gave rise to their particular experience of the world and the defenses that they find themselves gravitating towards or why they have anxiety in certain de- situations or depression. And, uh, and so I began to see within analysis the same thing that I was seeing within the Desert Fathers, the slow movement, the revelation of thoughts, this understanding of the mystery and the depth of, of the human person and, uh, and taking everything into account. Mo- most modern forms of psychotherapy do the opposite. Psychoanalysis seeks to gradually help the defense mechanisms to drop. And so the person might become more vulnerable and be able to see within themselves the, the deeper wounds. And it's a very difficult process. And you have to let the person set their own pace for that to take place because you become more and more vulnerable. And oftentimes people will gain like 50 pounds when they're in analysis because uh, you're gradually talking about these things that are very difficult and your defenses are dropping. So you start consoling yourself with all different kinds of food and uh, alcohol or whatever it might be. And, uh, uh, but the, the idea behind it is to allow this truth to emerge. Uh, and, and not only for healing to emerge, but understanding and freedom, the greater capacity to love and be loved, to work, to be in sustained relationships and friendships over the course of time, and not to have those things seen and affected through, uh, by the lens through which we view the world, which is often those defense mechanisms that are, are used to allow us to function within the world. Whereas what you find in a lot of modern psychotherapy is the opposite of helping people identify core beliefs and attitudes and to strengthen their defenses so that they can step out into the world and function with a a greater freedom. And I don't wanna diminish that. Things like cognitive behavioral therapy have been been immensely helpful to people. And certainly uh, psychoanalysis is prohibitive in regards to cost. Uh, if you're thinking about on the couch four or five times a week at $250 a pop, you know, it's for the wealthy, unfortunately, now. And, uh, and so it's, it's a much different process, but, but it does not do what we find in the Desert Fathers or in psychoanalysis, which, again, is holding on to the sense of the mystery of the other, and each person as being unique. There are certain common dynamics that analysts have come to see over time, similar structures and similar defenses that that emerge, but how they emerge in each person is different. So you can't uh, treat people as cookie cutter images of each other. You have to engage in this process and suspend judgment and allow this truth to begin to emerge for you to see about the other. So in and of itself, there's a deeper respect of the person. And as a priest, I think all priests would benefit from doing this because uh, in that response of sort of responding to a person's cry to help me, to fix me, often there's this lack of insight or appreciation that the approach to the spiritual life is not going to be monolithic. 
And so often there is this sort of myopic view of religion and religiosity and the spiritual life that infects the, the Christian communities that makes us lose sight of the other, of the person. And when we lose sight of the other, we also lose the capacity to love and to love them as they are, not as we imagine our mind they should be living their life. And it, it breeds uh, a depth of compassion and sympathy, not in a condescending way, because if, and the beautiful thing about this is that analysts, as I said, are required to undergo their own analysis. So you know firsthand what it is to let those defenses drop, to make yourself extraordinarily vulnerable, to look at the things that you do not want to look at uh, or even do not know are present within your experience uh, or what has been traumatic. That, you know, when Freud first began his clinical work, he had this sense that everything was rooted in sexual abuse. But he very quickly learned that trauma was not rooted, uh, not only in sexual abuse in all cases, but not even uh, rooted necessarily in abuse. It could be rooted simply in how a child would experience a certain turn of events or how the parents were engaging them or not engaging them. And so in some ways we have to think, how would a five-year-old experience something like this, an absence of a parent or a parent was si sick and absent for a long period of time? How does a little five-year-old deal with that reality when they don't have the capacity to think it through or somebody to help them address it. And nonetheless, this is a kind of trauma that can ca be carried on by a person throughout the course of their entire life, even though developmentally they continue to progress in life and carry on with life, there is this deep wound that can affect the way that they see themselves and their trust and ability to enter into relationships. If all of a sudden one of your parents disappears as a little child and you don't know why, all that you do is know the absence, the void, then on an unconscious level, uh, one can carry that into every relationship that you experience as, as you age. Freud once said that there is no sense of time in the unconscious that it is all there. It might not be something that we immediately have grasp of, but if something triggers it in our experience, something touches upon it, even in the most remote way, it could come to the surface very quickly and it can leave us at a loss. Why am I feeling this way? Or why do I have this negative experience of this person? Every time I come into this presence, I feel a discomfort with how they're talking to me or I have a kind of anger directed towards them or the desire to flee from them. And so in, in many ways, I, I feel blessed uh, to have taken this path to be exposed to the, the richest part of the spiritual tradition that does look to the depths, but also to look at depth psychology, both of which hold on to this f fundamental principle of the mystery uh, of the human person. It's a kind of a ironic thing, isn't it? You know, that Freud is dismissed. The classes that I had in counseling would give him about a paragraph's attention in the book. Even though common parlance, we make use of his language all the time. If you talk about defense mechanisms, repression, narcissistic, you know, personality, anything like that. It's either Freud or Anna Freud, his daughter. And so we're using it and we use the language all the time and we view the world through what we gain through psychoanalysis. But because of the, the nature of the work and the expense, we often will move away from it. And the same is true in the spiritual tradition. We will want to gravitate towards what is easiest what is quickest, what might provoke the quickest feeling or experience of God. And yet there's nothing within the spiritual tradition that teaches us that, that it's something that develops as the course of that relationship develops 
And the same thing with spiritual disciplines, that we only typically begin to see the fruit of them maybe 10 years after we've been engaging in them in a disciplined way. We begin to see a kind of freedom emerge within us. And uh, so similarly with an analysis, it can be over the course of time that a freedom begins to emerge. And analysts, even when they're, say, working with someone who perhaps is, has a more serious uh, struggle, borderline personality, uh, might struggle at times with this really uh, vulnerable, or not vulnerable, uh, volatile shift in mood from anger to joy, and they're all over the place. They're very challenging to work with. And often the analysts have to enter back into analysis themselves when they're working with individuals like this so they can understand their own counter transference because so much anger is being directed towards them that they can develop a hostility and hatred for their own client. So they have to go back into analysis to, in order to try to understand what is provoking this within me that maybe is inhibiting my freedom to listen to what the other person is saying. So it's a hard thing. I wasn't sure how to present it uh, because I said to really immerse ourselves in it would take a whole semester. So hopefully this was helpful on some level.